Simple Family Podcast. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and I have with me, as always, our co-host, Grant McGalliard. Grant, how are you? I am doing great, Parker. Uh, just just thriving uh, at my job right now. How are you doing, Mr. Uh, Mr. Dis- dissertation Man? Oh, you know, just writing and doing the best I can. Uh in these, uh, in these trying times. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. we did, we did take a week off last week. Life gets in the way sometimes, but I'm excited tonight to, uh, talk a little bit. We have a great guest, uh, uh, from the Kansan, uh, Jack Johnson. That is his real name. Um, I thought that was funny, like the singer and, uh, Jack is, uh, talking to us about Kansas football later on and is a really great preview to kind of kick off our team preview series um, here at Purple Theory, where we're just going to kind of slowly wander through the Big 12 from worst to first and talk about interesting storylines and stats like we always do. Um, more importantly than that, Grant, we have some big news. We have some, some breaking, uh, already broken, two days old, but still very exciting news. On Monday morning, five-star running back Zach Evans did in fact log into his classes and began attending classes at TCU, which means he is signed, he is on campus, uh, quote-unquote, and he will be on the TCU football team this fall. Five-star running back, Grant, how do you feel? I feel pretty good about it, I think. And we'll talk a little bit about impact, but I think TCU signing a five-star recruit, uh, this is a hot take, is good. Uh, and I think the fact that um, we got him after such a strange recruitment cycle may sound like a bad thing, but I think it's actually a good thing, especially because in these weird, like, uncertain times, it's an extremely late signing. The fact that TCU was able to uh, snag him up is a promising sign for the program. Definitely. I agree. I mean, you never want to turn away talent um, and all concerns about the weirdness of his recruitment aside. It's um it's a big get and it's nationally prominent. I mean, it's always nice to have someone who, who could have gone to the SEC come to TCU instead and not for, not for reasons other than he wanted to. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's pretty exciting. Um, I do have a bone to pick with this. A lot of people have been calling him uh, TCU's first five-star recruit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is my purple tinted glasses because you know me, ever the optimist. Justin Rogers was a five-star before he got hurt, right? Yes, he was. And then but he got then, downgraded to four. But in between the time that he got hurt and he got downgraded, he committed to TCU. He was committed before he got hurt. I'm pretty uh, sure. Okay. Okay. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm old, whatever. I still count Justin Rogers as a five-star because he was a five-star and nothing on the field besides injury changed. Uh, yeah, but I, sure. I thought he had gotten the TCU bump. No, I think, he, no, I think he got downgraded after injury, but also I've slept since 2017. So okay, so the, the reason this is on my mind is because Fox Sports tweeted this graphic that infuriated me the other day where it was like best recruit at every program and mm-hmm. TCU's was Justin Rogers, who is now a five-star again because he has left TCU. So um, that's neither here nor there. Um, Evans is, is a really good player. His uh, film, he looks like a grown man um, knocking over uh, boys, um, which is impressive. Uh, you know, high school athlete playing in 6A um, looks to have some skills that might translate, also looks to be able to just outman an opponent when um, he has the advantage. And so that's, that's always good to see. That's what you'd expect. Um, how do you uh, see him coming into TCU? How big of a deal do you think this is? What do you think he brings to the program? Yeah, well, Let's start with with how big of a deal I think this is. So, set the background a little bit. Two years ago, my friend, who's a huge A and M fan, Texags poster, um, you know, or at least reader, uh, calls me out of the blue and says, "Hey, man, have you heard of this kid Zach Evans?" I said, "I sure hadn't." And he spent ten minutes talking to me about how good this kid from Galena Park North Shore was. 
Um, I never heard of him, did my research. And at that point, I think A&M was the leader in the clubhouse to get him. Uh, this would have been about fall 2018. Uh, he went on to run for 96 yards and catch two passes of 14 yards in the state championship game, Class 6A Division One against Duncanville. Um, if you live in Texas, you know that game because North Shore won on a Hail Mary against Duncanville in the final seconds. It's awesome. Um, Evans put up 4,867 total yards uh, in three years in high school uh, and 76 touchdowns. So he's an extremely good running back. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I think his impact is going to be interesting because TCU's offense isn't predicated around running the ball. With that said, I think some of the quotes that he shared after signing make it sound like he does want to play a lot of roles in the offense between running the ball, catching the ball, things like that. Um, so if he is able to keep his nose clean uh, and, and gel with Gary Patterson, um, I think he can really make an impact. Um, from the jump, if TCU wants him to, I mean, it's going to be, look, how much, how much do we believe in this guy and how much do we want to integrate him, um, you know, from, from game one? Definitely. Yeah. I, I think uh, the, the potential of a, uh, a guy like this, it's, it's so versatile to come in and be a playmaker in different ways is, is big. Um, I did like to see him say things about catching passes, although running back targets are running back targets, you know, they are, they are what they are. Um, I am hopeful but not certain that TCU would make some changes to incorporate his skill set that would kind of move the offense in the right direction. Um, but yeah, definitely a little bit worried about, and I think this brings us to this conversation about like, if I was, if I got one five-star player running back would be like way down on my list of mm -hmm. people that I would pick. Um, and so there is, there is that not to, you know, not to rain on anybody's parade. They got a good recruit. It was a big coup. It was nationally significant and, and kind of fun to have all that excitement, but um, it is a running back. And if your offense is broken, all the running backs in the world aren't going to, aren't going to change that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, this is where I'll push back a bit because I certainly agree with you in principle, right. And in, in that, you know, on the whole, especially with the spread offenses, running backs are a dime a dozen. You see it in the NFL. Don't waste a first-round draft pick on a running back. Probably don't waste a second-round draft pick on a running back. But when it comes to the college game, I think there's a little bit more – and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think there's a little bit more variety, right, where a great athlete can really shine on the field. Not as much as he would in high school, certainly. He's not going to make men look like boys. But in college, I think Evans will have a chance to – show what he's worth. I mean, if he goes out there and he is everything that he's promised to be, he will make an impact on the field. It won't be as much as a five-star quarterback, let's say, but a five-star running back that lives up to five-star talent, like anyone in the country would take that. And I think TCU, Darius Anderson was extremely good. Shaywell was good. These guys have talent, but Evans is a different guy. He is the number one recruit in Texas by some metrics. And I think if he pans out, then I don't care if he's a running back. He's going to be a really good player if he lives up to that potential. Definitely. And, and agree and wish, like, want him to be a feature back. I'm a little bit worried about, like, second-order effects of, you know, is, is somebody going to transfer because of this? Are we going to uh, lose out in the long run on somebody else or um, all of that? But, again, if he lives up to it, this is all shouting and noise. Right. Um, so definitely, definitely a lot writing on, like, if he's successful – then who cares right. um, for sure. And again, I'm not opposed to good recruits. Good recruits are great. Um, and I think most of my consternation is just worried about, well, are TCU going to say, Oh, last year we really tried to run and protect the defense. And this year 
we have a really good running back, so now we can run even more and protect the defense, um, which I wouldn't put it past the TCU offense. So you're saying they should run the wishbone? Honestly, that would be more fun. Um, uh, but no, I, I mean, that would be better than what we do right now. I mean, we, again, I'm on the TCU football team. What they do right now, which is just uninspiring and not like, if you're going to be bad, at least be interesting. So I'm, I'm there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, speaking of interesting, I want to talk about his recruitment a bit. Um, so, so this is, and not necessarily his recruitment, but the reason he's been tagged with the um, problem child moniker, if you will. So you notice I mentioned his performance in the 2018 state championship game. I did not mention his 2019 performance, and that's because he didn't have one. Right. Um, Evans was suspended for the game uh, by his coach. Um, according to the Houston Chronicle, the reason for that um, was uh, that he basically refused to surrender his cell phone uh, before the game or abide by the school's cell phone rules. And so North Shore said, you know what? We're not playing you. I don't care how good of a recruit you are or how a player you are. We're not going to put you in the game. This is the part where I point out that Duncanville starting quarterback, uh, Jaquindon Jackson, who's a Texas recruit, uh, missed that game and was injured, I believe, in the semifinal. So I'm not saying there's a conspiracy theory there, but I think if Jaquindon Jackson was playing, I'm not sure Evans would have been suspended for the entire game. But Yeah, I think that's very in line with what I know about high school coaches, that like yeah. you can you choose when to make a stand, and it's a lot easier right. to make a stand when the opportunity costs lower. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm speaking, that's not anything I know. I, I'm just, I'm curious to see what would happen if Jaquinton yeah. Jackson would have been in that game. Uh, interestingly, Evans also missed the first half of the state semifinal uh, the week before. Uh, that's because he had to take the ACT in Houston before traveling to Round Rock for the game so that he could early enroll in college, which is interesting to me. Um, then he gets his recruitment. So like I said, he was originally sort of pegged as an A&M guy. Come 2019, however, Georgia's in the lead, and he's supposed to commit with Georgia. I have seen varying things in that he either did officially commit to Georgia or didn't, or had committed but didn't sign, things like that. He was supposed to sign at halftime of the Under Armour All-American game, but didn't. And his recruitment's been open ever since. Florida made a late push. I think Tennessee made a late push. Um, but come May you know, 11th, no one signed him yet, and then he winds up at TCU. Um, he had been with a and I mean, he, he went to uh, – so TCU offered him February 1st of 2019. He went to A&M's Pro Day on February 24th uh, later that month. I think he was still probably in the A&M camp, uh, A&M, you know, sphere then. Then Georgia, then he wound up back with the Frogs, um, which, again, if we're going to get a five-star, I, I, short of doing anything that we're going to get uh, suspended for, I don't have a problem how we do it. Right. Well, and, and even more so, uh, not that we get suspended for, as long as you don't get caught, I don't care how we do it. So uh, also that's completely yeah, true. Everybody's, everybody's cheating. Right, um, right. Yeah, it is definitely weird. And I think it's one of those things we'll look back on, especially like if his, you know, if his season or if his career at TCU pans out, it'll be kind of funny to be like, Oh, he argued with his coach over a phone and right. that spun it. But you know, I'm not, I'm not putting anybody on blast, but there's like Aggies on Twitter who are saying things like Kirby smart, had his offer letter in the shredder and like this was a favor to the sec teams that they could get out of it and all this and you're just like i just don't know if he had like committed to tcu and then gone away and then gone to georgia people would be like oh gary patterson had his letter in the shredder you know i, right. I think that's just very much a, he didn't go to tcu well, or somewhere big i have a surprise for you parker because okay. i did something that i do on occasion when i'm feeling down and i need to pick me up uh, I go to the forums on Texag. Yes. Um, it's my so favorite recurring semi semi-regular segment. Here is here are three posts from January the 8th on Texag. 
in, in, in regards to recruiting Zach Evans. Do we really want to do this? A hundred times, yes. He reminds you of Dalvin Cook, and we know how well Jimbo did with Dalvin. One guy said he actually thinks that there was a secret recruiting video filmed uh, a couple months ago, and that he's actually committed to Texas A&M. He was very excited about that. Now here are three posts from Monday. What an idiot. Talk about blowing your recruitment. Dude will be bagging groceries in three years. This is my favorite. Patterson would sell his own mother to a Mexican drug cartel if he thought it would help him win. So as we can see, it, it, this follows the, 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 the number one rule of college football, which is that if other schools immediately start saying that the kid wasn't worth it in the first place, he's probably a good player. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. Like it's, it's – uh, what is like the, the, the dating shows where like those weird guys teach – uh, how to date or whatever and it's like negging is one thing they do and they're like you just gotta walk up and be mean to the girl and then she'll like mm-hmm. it. like whatever that is it's like they're like they're like negging the recruits yeah that's exactly what they're doing it's not tweeting at recruits it's negging them which is somehow worse i don't know if that was possible but i think it's worse yeah oh uh, people are tweeting at him for sure oh yeah uh, no, no, I'm yeah. Sure. yeah 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 you know the whole thing is is i mean summing it up it it was a weird deal I'm not sure how TCU snuck in there at the last minute, but I think any TCU fan should be glad that they did. And regardless, and this is the other thing too, regardless of whether or not he plays a down at TCU or if he kind of washes out, the fact that TCU has the clout, if you will, to sign a five-star running back, like that looks good on paper. And for Gary Patterson, I'm sure he's very happy that he was able to sign a five-star. The second one, I would say, behind Justin Rogers. And, And for any other recruit, it's a destination. Yeah, and it doesn't hurt to have a like you know North Shore is a good program. It doesn't hurt to yes. have established those Texas connections. Like, I mean, it's it's definitely like a high upside move because if you know the worst case scenario is true, which I don't think it's close to true, but like, and he flames out and can't keep his stuff together, whatever that means, uh, he leaves. That's fine. Like, whatever. We got the benefit of signing a five star, and then he's gone. Devontae um, Fields left, and TCU won a Peach Bowl. Yeah, and then Devontae Fields went somewhere where they don't care about being a human and kept playing football. Um, Bobby Petrino, looking at you. <laughs> oh man, uh, that's a great that's a great uh, wrap up note. Uh, mm-hmm. I think on the Zach Way Evans. To end. I'm excited. Uh, uh, Bobby Petrino sucks. I feel confident on both of those things. I, can we have uh, Jason Kirk's way too famous to come on this podcast? But this is where I would do a poor imitation of his Petrino voice if I had any uh, self if I didn't have any self respect. But I do, so I'm not going to do that. I don't think I've ever heard that because I don't listen to terrible podcasts, so I've never heard that. Oh, come on now! You know kicking it while it's down, kicking the shutdown full cast while it's down. Um, man, well, still a weird dead period. Not much going on. We're gonna plow ahead with these uh, season previews and kind of wander our way through the Big Twelve and anything else fun that that comes along. Um, you can find Grant on Twitter at Grant McGalliard, spelled like it sounds with a whole lot of uh, vowels. Mm-hmm. And uh, me at Stats O War. Um, I wrote a way too long piece about TCU's offense that's up this week. Happy to talk about that. Also, if uh, people like the rewatch, if there's a game that you want us to rewatch, that would be really fun. We could all do that together. So uh, give us suggestions for what you want to hear us talk about on Twitter, um, and we'll keep, uh, we'll keep producing uh, mediocre but compelling content. Of course. Hey, y'all enjoy this interview with Jack Johnson. Um, it, it, I'm really curious to hear what he has to say about Kansas football. I, th- I think he's a good resource. So um, it, it's, they're an interesting team, no doubt about it. Definitely. Cool. Well, that's it for us. And we're going to come back in a minute with Jack and um, hear about Kansas football.
We have here with us tonight Jack Johnson of the Kansan, uh, a Kansas football insider, if you will. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast tonight to talk about Kansas football 2020. The Kansas Jayhawks in 2019 were not what you could traditionally call good at football. Um, so, Jack, before we start out, before we rattle some stats and some numbers, give us um, the, the big picture of 2019 Kansas football for people who may not have followed the Jayhawks. Well, going into the year, there was a lot of hype surrounding the program, uh, obviously with Les Miles coming in. And so leading up to that first game, there was a lot of energy, you know, going into it. People really wanted to see a change, you know, after David Beatty left. They wanted to see KU come out of the gates and really blow the doors off Indiana State. That didn't happen. They squeaked out barely, had to come back in, you know, the final minutes. And then, you know, it was good to get that monkey off the back. But then next week they fall to Coastal Carolina, and then everything felt after that that this was going to be the same thing, you know, losses were going to come after that. Then they strangely bounced back against Boston College, so then the moral was, the morale was high again. Um, but then again, it was just – it was the struggles in Big 12 play, um, you know, the inability to really string together a lot of consistent road games. Uh, they had a really close one at Texas, which personally was, I think, a turning point for the program. It would have been nice. I think they were about one stop away in the final drive Texas had of really pulling off a shocker. Uh, but, yeah, just they really, you know, you, at times you thought they were stringing together a lot of good games and then they'd get, you know, blown out. TCU's one of them, Oklahoma State, K-State. K-State was their first sellout in almost 10 years, and they just laid an egg, got, uh, you know, blasted by K-State. Wasn't even close. You know, it was pretty much over by the first quarter. So, you know, you'd like to say it was a positive turnaround in his first year, but I think a lot of people want to get over that hump of that three-win season. Uh, they wanted to get that fourth win. Um, definitely in this first year, but, you know, hopefully this year they're going to have to start a little bit better and they can't be losing, you know, non-con games at home for sure. Yeah. And Jack, that's kind of what I expected. I mean, I assume anytime you bring less miles into a program, there's a little bit of excitement because Lord knows what he's going to do, but outside of that morale or that kind of energy, did you see anything without getting too deep into scheme that was different on the field. What did Les do differently from David Beatty or, or was there any sort of, you know, continuity there or were they starting fresh? Well, we, we had an offensive coordinator change. Uh, I think that was leading into the Texas game where it was on the bye week. Uh, we promoted Brent Dearman who had worked a little bit uh, at Auburn. And so people thought, you know, new young offensive mind was going to help the offense. And obviously we go into Texas, we put up, I think 47, 48 points. And a lot of that success came from opening up, the short game, uh, you know, you have Puka Williams in the backfield, but when they got the pass game going, you know, five, six, seven yard passes, it kind of opened up their deep threat. And KU traditionally in years past just couldn't get those good chunk yardage gains on first and second down and put them in a hole in third down. So there was a lot of RPO usage. Um, once they got Puka going in the passing game, uh, that really opened up their offense for sure. They had Khalil Herbert for a little bit. And then right before the TCU game, I think it was, about 20 or 30 minutes, we were informed that he would not be in uniform. And then he sat out the rest of the season, and now he transferred to Virginia Tech. So that was a big shock to the team. So they kind of had to change from this two running back duo to uh, basically giving a lot of the workload to Puka Williams. And going into 2020, I suspect they'll do much of the same and giving him a lot of, you know, 20-plus carry games and really giving him five to six catches in the passing game. Definitely. And, and I want to touch on Puka. Um, I, I would be remiss if we didn't rattle off a couple stats right here just for people who may not be in the know. So Kansas in 2019 was three and nine. They haven't won more than three games since 2009. They haven't been bowling since 2008. Uh, that was back in the Mangino era. 
which is uh, some might argue a heyday of college football in some ways. Um, they uh, Kansas had five one-score games, and they were three and two in those one-score games. They finished. 104th overall in SP plus 78th on offense 106 on defense which uh, seems a little crazy because there were moments the Texas game the Boston College game where we thought wow there's some potential here Um, so uh, kind of another big picture question and then I want to get into the offense and the schedule and the units Um, like I like I said you know this Kansas hasn't even had a spark of hope uh, aside from getting less miles in over a decade Um, is is Kansas a a program that can be saved. Uh, is there a chance for Kansas to move out of the three win cellar and into something like bowling and competition in the near future? Um, I, I definitely think they're, they're kind of on the cusp of getting out of that three win territory. Um, I truly believe it's just starting fast for them. Uh, so many years that, that upset loss where they're, you know, I know in the first year after Mangina, they lost to North Dakota state. Uh, there were losses to Northern Illinois on the road. And then obviously this past year is Coastal Carolina, uh, Nickel State, David Beatty's final year. It's just those losses completely torpedo the season for them because they just aren't able to rebound from that. And I, I was truly surprised when they went on the road and won at Boston College because in the postgame for Coastal Carolina, the players just looked really defeated because, you know, for that whole offseason, everybody was, you know, pumping them up, thinking this was going to be a good quick turnaround. And, you know, most reasonable expectations thought it, they weren't going to do it in one year. But I think, you know, the biggest key for them is developing an identity uh, for sure. They, they sort of tried to go with a couple different flows. They tried an air raid offense under Beatty. That didn't work. And I think once they just like develop that one true identity, uh, they're going to slowly improve. I don't think they'll ever get to the point of really competing for a big 12 title. I, I'm not saying that at all, but I think, you know, every one they want the, point they want to get to is definitely, you know, competing five, six wins, uh, you know, every year or so. Um, just try to really get a competitive atmosphere in Lawrence, and hopefully Les Miles will be able to do that in his time in Lawrence. Well, and if it's any consolation, uh, Kansas was three and two in one score games. TCU was one and six, so at least you've got that on the Horn Frogs, uh, because, <laughs> yeah, you can hang your hat on that. Yeah. The small, the silver linings. At, mm-hmm. at, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so let's let's move into uh, let's move into talking about the uh, offense, talking about the units a little bit. Kansas is uh, 127th in returning production overall, meaning meaning that they are 127th out of 130 teams in terms of who they are bringing back. That is um, rough, but also you know we talk about on this podcast a lot that uh, returning production doesn't matter as much when your players are not as good, and uh, Kansas has the opportunity to replace some players who weren't as good with potentially some better players as Les Miles builds up that recruiting. So let's kind of talk about the roster and the units. Um, I actually, uh, Jack, found you and invited you on this podcast because of your article about quarterbacks. Um, I thought that was fascinating. And I would love for you to talk about uh, the, the quarterbacks. Now that Carter Stanley's gone, what are the interesting positional battles for the Kansas Jayhawks? Well, definitely, yeah, quarterback's going to be number one. And uh, after, you know, Carter Stanley did turn in one of the best quarterback seasons for KU since Todd Reesing. Uh, he really, you know, shined in his last year there. And for the most part, he was battling for, you know, a starting job the entire time he was there. Uh, he just never really found – he strung, he didn't string enough consistent games together to really grab a hold of that spot, which is unfortunate, but he was able to, you know, be pretty consistent in his senior year. So I think, you know, going into 2020, there, there's – very few options. One of them is Thomas McVitie. He was the backup for Stanley. There was a quarterback controversy going into last offseason. Miles liked McVitie a lot. He's, you know, pretty big frame, about 6'5", I think 220-ish. 
Uh, he went to Mesa Community College, I think, in 2018. Uh, was one of the top pro-style quarterbacks. Um, so I think he's going to, right now, it's his job to lose just because there's not enough uh, depth there. I know Miles Kendrick is another guy. He took some snaps um, in the Beatty era. Mainly as a running quarterback, uh, but he's just he was buried last year in the, in the depth chart. And then another name I really like is Jalen Daniels. Uh, he's one of the new recruits coming in, freshman dual threat guy. I think, you know, a few years in the system might be able to mold him into a starter by maybe his junior year. You know, if all fails this year, he may see some action. I'm not real sure. I mean, he's going to have an opportunity definitely in camp because you know, there's just not a for sure starting quarterback on this roster. And there usually isn't. Um, it's usually leading up to week one, the coaches try to, you know, deceive the opponent and not really give out who they're going to start. Most people actually thought last season that Thomas McVitie was going to be the starter because Miles talked about him so much, but it was Stanley and Stanley started every game. So um, I'd have to say McVitie would be the guy to go with week one unless something were to happen in camp. Well, and that's the tough part, right? Because, I mean, speaking from experience having covered TCU, not having a consistent starting quarterback can really be tough. Like if you always have those questions going into camp and you don't have a guy that is the clear number one, but doesn't allow the offense to build consistency. And I think that's certainly something you can attest to for Kansas. There hasn't been that consistency, right? That's kind of been missing. Exactly. And for the most part in the, the 2010 to 2020 era of Kansas football, uh, a lot of people looked at that quarterback, contra quarterback controversy as a sign of, you know, positivity in some aspect, you know, they, they wanted a new change. You know, when somebody didn't do good the previous year, they're like, this guy, is certainly going to be the guy. They had Dane Christ when Charlie Weiss was there, transferred from Notre Dame. Jake Heaps transferred in. They had Montel Cozart, uh, Ryan Willis. They all thought that their year was going to be the year they took over the offense, and it just never worked out that way. Uh, from my personal view, I always thought that they needed to stick out with guys longer um, because they just weren't surrounded with enough talent at the time. Uh, you saw Montel Cozart go to Boise State, and he thrived there. Ryan Willis went to Virginia Tech. I think it was just giving them time to adapt. I mean – we asked – at the time, they were asking freshman quarterbacks to come in and compete in the Big 12 against Oklahoma, Texas, TCU, Texas Tech. It was just – it wasn't possible to do that. And I think that they should have just given it time and given that starting role to kind of back the quarterback up. I know that Carter Stanley, you know, thought that he, – he just loved that Les Miles always gave him the confidence. If he had a bad game, Les Miles would come in and say, you know, Carter's still our guy moving forward. And that was something that kind of – uh, wasn't there in the Beatty area. They'd always try to say that they're going to evaluate the position again. And obviously, as a collegiate athlete, you're not going to feel very confident after one bad game. Your job may be or your job may be taken from you. Um, that that is not to say that it's not should be competitive. But um, yeah, I think that last year Miles really showed a lot of trust in going with Stanley. And I think that's a key thing for him is picking one guy and sticking to him, mm -hmm. unless he's just completely flat out failing um, against teams. Yeah. Definitely. And I, and I think as much as I dislike intangibles and momentum and, you know, coaches having quote unquote it, uh, Les Miles versus David Beatty is just different worlds in terms of Les Miles being able to have the confidence and the foresight and um, not, you know, fighting for his life. If this goes wrong for Les Miles, hey, this was fun. He got back on the spotlight and then he goes host college game day and his life is great as he rides out the sunset. So like he's able to do those things and say, no, I know I need to stick with the quarterback uh, to help his development. And so that's definitely something I think as you know, Kansas can, can boast is kind of some program know-how that they really haven't had in a very long time. Mm -hmm. Well, and you mentioned one other thing too, which is surrounding these guys with talent. And we talked a bit about Puka Williams coming back. I think he's a pretty, 
pretty good guy in the backfield. But wide receiver wise, um, I remember researching last year and reading, okay, like Andrew Parchment, decent wide receiver, same with Stephon Robinson Jr. Those guys are seniors, but it looks like, you know, whoever does take the snaps for Kansas last year will have a decent wide receiver core to throw it to, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I thought Parchment was one of, you know, the top receivers Kansas had in the last few seasons. Uh, he came in from Iowa Central Community College, which was actually one of the schools that was on last chance U with Independence. Uh, he wasn't in that game per se, but he uh, he's from that school. And we also had Ezra Naylor, who went from the same place, and he'll probably get some more action this year. Uh, but I really liked Parchman and Stefan Robinson. Their production uh, really surprised me uh, going into that first year. You know, once Dearman took over as the offensive coordinator, they were they were getting the ball pretty frequently. I know Stefan Robinson had a three-game stretch where he had two touchdowns in all of those games and had, I think, nearly 400 yards receiving in all, all three of those – or combined for those three games. Uh, so I think – I like him and Parchment coming back as the two main guys. And then – you know, with Ezra Naylor, I, I think he's got a good frame, 6'4", I think 215. Uh, they got a couple three-star recruits coming in that could battle for the fourth spot there. Uh, they lost Quan Hampton, who was uh, kind of a slot receiver um, to transfer portal. But I think that, you know, it'll be a good time for a young guy to really grab that spot and, uh, you know, be there in a couple years because, you know, they got good guys to work with. I think Parchment's a really good leader. Um, in that locker room, Stefan Robinson as well. Uh, those are two guys that a lot of the younger guys will look up to. And, you know, that, that does help for the quarterback that they're going to have, you know, guys that have been able to put up production in the Big 12. Uh, they're not coming in fresh with a lot of young guys. So I think that, you know, they're going to build off that. It's just a matter of if, you know, the offensive line gives them time, if the quarterback can be consistent enough. And, you know, Brent Deerman is able to uh, construct sort of an offense to, you know, quietly put up, you know, good production in the conference. Absolutely. And, and I'm seeing here, they're actually bringing back four of their five top yards per target receivers from last season. And so that'll be really nice kind of nurturing in a new quarterback. Uh, what I think is interesting though, is one of those receivers is running back Puka Williams. Um, and I think, Puka is kind of the focal point for this offense just because, especially like in a less miles offense, the quarterback has never really mattered that much. Um, you know, modern football is different than it was 10 years ago, five years ago, whatever. But um, it seems like you mentioned that earlier, Puka getting involved in the passing game really changed things around. Kansas had a huge split in the passing and rushing game. Uh, in rushing SP+, plus, they were 50th overall on offense. And in passing, they were 91st. And so it felt like any offensive production they had last year really it was required to go through Puka. So um, let's just let's talk about Puka Williams. Uh, I will say vaguely he had some trouble last year. Seems to be away from that and back and and ready for his junior season. What is um, what is his role to this team? What do we expect to see out of him this fall? Uh, he's absolutely going to be the workhorse for the offense. Uh, I know that towards the end of last year, I mean, he was getting 23, 24, 25 carries a game, and he'd be thrown at you know seven, eight times. Uh, the issue with that, though, is I felt like in some games uh, down towards the end of the season, he was almost used too much where it was just he was wearing out and guys were able to cover him, and that was kind of stunting the offense. He's at his best when Kansas opens up that quick game and they're able to get him, you know, handoffs in the shotgun. He, he's fast enough to get around the edge and uh, take it 30, 40 yards. Um, so I think that he's definitely going to be the workhorse. He's going to be the number one back. He's not going to have to split carries with, you know, with Khalil Herbert in there and Dom Williams. Those guys are gone, and Puka's going to be the main guy there. And I think that if, you know, he can kind of be that 
uh, security blanket for whoever's taking snaps uh, for KU under center. That's going to be key for him to be able to be just as effective as he was his freshman year. And then, you know, hopefully getting him effective in the screen game. I'm just coming out of the backfield in general. Definitely. And I don't want to necessarily skip over the offensive line, Parker, unless you wanted to delve into that, because I'm chomping at the bit to talk about the defense. But is there anything on offensive line we need to know coming into this season? Well, they did lose uh, Hakeem Adeniji, who, uh, to the Bengals in the draft, he was by far, you know, our best lineman last year. But they are returning a few veteran guys. I think Oppie Main comes to mind. Chris Hughes, Antoine Frazier, um, Lopetti is another guy. that They have some good experience there. I think they got five recruits coming in to battle for spots there. Um, it was not a strength for them last year. But, again, I think the biggest key for them is just holding the line long enough for KU to get the ball out quickly. Uh, if KU's gonna, they don't, they don't have the gun slinger. They don't have the deep threats on all, all sides of the field. Uh, they're gonna have to, you know, get that quick game going, and not have the the line have to try to defend all these elite pass rushers. You know, in the Big Twelve, they just can't do. That's not a part of Kansas's offense. They thrived last year against Boston College, Iowa State, Texas, when they got the ball out quickly early and then brought the secondary in, and they were able to go over the top and then also be effective in the run game. So the line, you know, is important, but, again, their job won't be as, in as much of a necessity as, is, as it is on the quarterback to uh, get the ball out quickly. Gotcha. For sure. Grant, I want to flip over to the defense, and I want to let you drive. Before that, I'm just going to list off some, some stats to uh, scratch my itch, and then we can talk sure. about the defense. So the Kansas defense, I think, is fascinating because they were very bad. There was no getting around that. They were – uh, 102nd in passing SP plus and 91st in rushing SP plus on defense. Um, and, you know, TCU fans are, are familiar with what the Kansas defense looks like. Um, and, but they're so interesting because they were 128th in success rate allowed. So like they were allowing consistent success, but they were 24th in explosiveness. So it's like they were just giving up so many plays that they're, points per play average seemed so low like they just allowed consistent success play after play uh and so high success rate low explosiveness allowed which is just profoundly weird uh for for a bad defense so um that that pontificating uh leading us into a discussion about the defense grant uh take the reins here let's talk about the kansas defense yeah well and, and really what i'm interested about is that the names that i know from the kansas defense are gone Right. So, and they were all in the defensive backfield. So maybe that's me just kind of watching as a, you know, a guy who, who researches Kansas once a year when, when TCU is going to play them, but guys like, uh, you know, Mike Lee at safety, for example, uh, Bryce Tornan back there as well. Um, you know, guys like that, those guys aren't there anymore. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, Hassan defense as well, uh, a cornerback. So is the TC or excuse me, is the Kansas secondary just completely gone and they're starting anew? Um, because I, I'm, I'm trying to find out where, where their production is going to come from. Uh, definitely. I mean, the secondary took a big hit and they're going to have to fill a lot of holes. Uh, definitely. In secondary. I mean, in linebacking court too, uh, I noticed a huge switch in the defensive play when Drew Prox linebacker, he went down in the West Virginia game and he was out for the year. Uh, Gavin Potter, one of our freshmen had to step in and, you know, he, he did, he was able to, you know, record a lot of tackles in games, but, you know, Drew Prox was a true leader on that defense. And once he went out, uh, you know, KU was giving up 40, 50 points a game. And, I mean, the yardage was a big thing too. I mean, they just couldn't, like you said, the explosive plays down the field, they just weren't able to stop. And I think one of the biggest parts of that is they just never 
developed an identity on there. They, they did not defend the run well. They didn't defend the pass well. They didn't, you know, pressure the quarterback enough. And that's, you know, the Big 12 isn't known for their defense. But at some point, if you're wanting to try to pull off an upset or compete with the tougher teams in the conference, you have to find ways to either stop the run, stop the pass, put pressure on the quarterback, turn the ball over. In fact, in David Beatty's last year, they actually were pretty good at uh, turning the ball over. And last year, it was just non-existent. They couldn't – they could not get any interceptions. They couldn't punch the ball out. Um, and they're just going to have a lot of turnover there. You have Tornadon's gone. Mike Lee's gone. Uh, Hassan Defense is gone. Corian Harris, you know, he's he was a four-star recruit coming in. He's played pretty consistently in his freshman and sophomore year. But I would expect him to be the number one guy coming back. Um, you have Davon Ferguson as a safety um Jay Deneen brother of Joe Deneen uh he had a pretty good year last year um and then defensive line I mean that also they lost a lot of guys there Darius Morani Azura Kamara so the whole defense is going to be a lot of turnover there and you know you could look at it from an aspect of again could be positive you know you need to get a lot of young guys in there see how they can compete in the Big 12 but again I remember in 2015 we had a lot of turnover and the winless year and the defense was, you know, they just were playing a lot of freshmen, had a, lost a lot of guys in the secondary and obviously went downhill from there. So I think there's some talent there. Now it's just a matter of if they compete against, you know, elite wide receivers, top running backs and gunslinging quarterbacks. Right. And, you know, looking at production, I mean, I, what, so the, the defensive line returns 37% of production linebackers, 65%. So I'm guessing that's Prox and probably Deneen, right? Is that sort of the strength of the defense I would say going into 2020? Yeah. I mean, the linebacking core has some good, good names there. I also like Steven Parker. Uh, he played sparingly as well. He was another four-star recruit. I'd expect him to have more snaps. Kyron Johnson is another guy that got a lot of snaps. And I think that some of these guys definitely have the potential um, they just didn't get enough snaps last season. Um, I really do expect Drew Prox to, again, emerge as the leader. Last year, Bryce Tornaden was a, a very vocal leader in the secondary. Now that he's gone, I think Drew Prox will pretty much man that defense. He's going to be healthy again. So if he's able to sort of develop this attitude and mentality that they're not going to be this team that just has offenses run all over them or pass all over them, you know, they could just be a team that thinks, you know, we're not going to prevent a lot of we're not going to prevent teams from scoring might as well take the ball away. Um, if they're aggressive in that, you know, area, maybe their defense could be an improvement, but again, um, I'm going to have to wait and see for that because they just have so many new guys that are going to be there playing for the first time. And again, in the big 12, that's easier said than done to be competitive there. Definitely. And you, um, you mentioned that uncertainty and I think it is fair to say that there are a lot of question marks just in terms of, we don't know, so much about college football season, uh, but also just we don't know so much about like what Les Miles can do in the offseason and what uh, Kansas could do, knowing that last year was basically a, a written off year in a lot of ways for Kansas. Um, let's turn our attention here to the schedule um, and looking at who Kansas uh, plays and where they might find some wins. So um, their non-conference games this year are uh, FCS, uh, they have Boston College, who they trounced at home, and then they have to go to cost, uh, Coastal Carolina, um, a team that they lost to last year at home, and a team that is bringing back uh, the fifth most offensive production in the country. Um, so some tricky non-conference games there, and then they have four um, road games in the Big 12. They get the nice draw uh, on that Big 12 schedule where you have five games at home. Um, 
where are the wins on this schedule in your opinion, Jack? Well, I mean, it's always tough to tell because I'm usually always wrong in my predictions for their season. But uh, I'd like to say, you know, New Hampshire's one that I think they'll be able to get out of there with a win. Um, you know, Boston College, I'd like to say just off of last year, you know, they don't, they're not returning A.J. Dillon, who had a lot of yards on the ground against KU in that game. That was pretty much Boston College's main offensive production in that game. So I'd like to think, you know, you flip the venue to, you know, Lawrence and maybe similar outcome. I think it'll be closer for sure. I don't think, I think BC was definitely caught off guard by KU's offense in that game. Again, Coastal Carolina, that, that one's tough to me, but maybe with the way, uh, you know, they got that road monkey off their back of being able to actually win a game on the road. You know, I think that game's a 50-50. I'm not super confident on that. And then I guess the only Big 12 game that I would say they have a, good shot as maybe West Virginia. Um, I know that game's going to be in Morgantown. I just, I'd like to say th- four wins. I'd like to say they'd get there. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, able to say five wins just strictly because they don't have a quarterback right now that has played a lot of snaps at the division one level. So you can't really lock in four or five wins when you don't have a quarterback that's played in the big 12. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, they can try to knock off New Hampshire, Boston College, maybe get Coastal Carolina, and then West Virginia would be would be my thoughts going in there. And then they always surprise me, you know, like game against Texas or something or Texas Tech. You never know. For sure. Well, and, well, and Grant, we don't talk about that. How dare you? It didn't exist. <laughs> it happened. Well, and, and one thing, too, I, um, I don't want to keep you too long, Jack, but just looking at the schedule, we mentioned it's, it's the easy draw, right? It's five games at home, four away. But for Kansas, it's – those four games away are the teams that you would ex- – like, those are the teams that Kansas has the best shot of beating. So it's Kansas State, West Virginia, uh, Texas Tech, um, and then they are at Baylor, which, which would be home for, for anybody. But you'd want those games to be at home so that you say, great, we can knock off like a weak West Virginia team. We can knock off, you know, Texas Tech, which is still rebuilding. But you still have to go to those places. And I think that's almost a disadvantage for Kansas in that, yeah, they have four away games, but – those are all on the home, uh, in the home turf for teams that they're trying to beat. Those are their direct competition. So I don't think it's quite as, as, as nice of a draw as Kansas would like it to be. No doubt. And I just think that, you know, with KU's attendance, um, I always like to say, you know, you want to be able to say home games is what you prefer. But, you know, surprisingly last year, they played a lot better um, on the road. I, I Boston College, Texas, uh, Iowa State was another surprising game. They came back and pretty much had they forced Iowa State to go for it on fourth down on KU's one because they basically didn't want to kick a field goal and give the ball back uh, to KU's offense. I mean, that was another high-scoring game. And a lot of the times, KU disappointed at home. Um, I think one of those games that just really sticks out to me, I know they beat Texas Tech, but Texas Tech also had that blunder on the field goal, pitching it back. You know, we were able to get a second shot at the field goal. But most of the time, KU's disappointed at home uh indiana state was way closer than it should have been coast carolina lost uh when they sold out i know there's a lot of k-state fans there too but they got blasted by k-state baylor trounced them at the end of the year um oklahoma you know blasted them as well uh there's not been a lot of games where ku's been able to look on the schedule uh that match up evenly and they're able to you know come away with the win there last year it was i think just knowing that everybody doubted them on the road like texas Iowa State and Boston College that they were able to sort of have a no, you know, they're not going to have any, you know, pressure going into this game. 
And I think that one game they truly had pressure was K-State, and they, they fell flat. Yeah, cool. um, that's, that's great, man. My, so my next questions, I'm kind of laughing over here because my next questions were, uh, what is best case scenario? What's worst case? And, uh, and those kind of, I feel like you hit those bounds nicely. Like it's hard to define progress when, you're, when your program is the state it is. Um, at Big 12 Media Days two years ago, David Beatty told me and a group of other people um, that when he got to campus, he had 38 scholarship players and nine of them walked out the door and didn't come back. Um, and so, you know, just a roster that's, that's untenable. And so a really tough situation, it's hard to measure progress, but um, winning those non-con games and then trying to steal a big 12 game feels like that's Kansas making a step forward this fall. Would you agree with that? Uh, definitely. You know, my goal for them has always been to get this, you know, to get this ship really moving in the right direction. They definitely have to start competing against even the ranked opponents. You can't come in and expect to make improvements when you're losing 50 to six. I mean, they their goal this year you know it's year two so you want to get over that three win hump but I think the main progress will be don't lose a game over three scores and I know that can be tough when you have teams like Oklahoma TCU Oklahoma State in the conference that's that might happen that happens to good teams as well but if you really want to make strides in the losses you just have to be competitive to an extent for at least three quarters there Um, I think they have to get one legit upset uh, in conference, you know, we count upsets for KU as when they beat Texas, Texas was hovering around 500 when they came to Lawrence, um, Texas tech was pretty much the same record that we were at the time. So those count as upsets for KU, but they're not really upsets on the national ranking. If they can go in and beat a team that's six and three, you know, and use that as kind of your foundation block, then, you know, you start hot, you get your non-conference wins, you get one, you know, upset win and you're competitive against the Oklahoma's, TCU's, Oklahoma State's, then I think you can walk away after 2020 and say, okay, I think we're moving in the right direction here. Maybe we're getting more recruits to think, oh, KU's on, you know, turning it around here. I can go start a quarterback now for a four-star recruit or something like that. So I think competitiveness in the loss is a huge uh, turning point for them going into 2020. Definitely. This is sorry. That's the meanest thing is that beating Texas wasn't that big of an upset for Kansas. I love that. That's hilarious. Beautiful. Very funny. Uh, That's this is an obscure quote from an old TCU basketball coach right before the the year before they won the NIT uh, and they fired this guy. But he said, you know, we used to get crushed and now we have crushing losses. And as silly as it was, like that's where a program needs to be when you're when you're where they are. Um, Jack, this has been awesome, man. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Where can people um, find you online? Where can they read your work and follow along Kansas football and your thoughts? Um, well, for, for now, you can just follow me on Twitter mainly. Uh, that's at JohnnyJ15. Um, and then for my writing accounts, I write for the Kansan for now. I also write for Royals Review on SB Nation. Um, so that's where you can find my work there. And then for this fall, kind of still undetermined on where I'll be, but I will be covering KU football. Um, so if you, if you're following my Twitter, you definitely will be able to see KU football news. If that's, if that's intriguing to you, I know (laughs) TCU fans may not be as intrigued with KU football, but if you want to hear the latest news, I'll be sure to give it out to you guys. Look, we stay locked inside uh, any longer. I'm going to start feasting on Kansas football news. So, um, Jack, thanks so much, man. This was awesome. And, uh, appreciated having you on tonight. No problem. Thanks for having me.